In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This is the I Spy Radio Show. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Keeping an eye on big government. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. And now, here is your host, Mark Anderson. Did you know our months are all screwed up, or at least the names are? In the original Roman calendar, which only had 304 days, leaving some 61 days of winter that weren't counted at all, the final months of the year were simply named for their Latin numerals. Octo is Latin for eight, Novem is nine, Decem is ten, and yet October, Latin for the eighth month, is now our tenth month. December is not the tenth month, but the twelfth month. The first reform to the Roman calendar adjusted the number of days per month and added two months, Januarius and Februarius, to the end of the calendar, so October and December and the other numbered months stayed in their proper place. But then came the Julian calendar in 46 BC, which not only reordered things, but with the help of astronomers, pegged the actual year lasting 365 and one quarter days. To realign with the spring equinox, the first year was 445 days long before getting back to the standard 365 and a quarter, with a leap year every four years. Except the astronomers had overestimated the year by 11 minutes which doesn't sound like much, but has a cumulative effect of adding eight days every millennium. This was later corrected by the Gregorian calendar, which reset the calendar, taking away 10 days and also fine-tuned the leap years. But when Gregory reset the calendar, he did not use the date of the spring equinox in the year of Jesus' birth, but used the date it occurred in 325 AD, the year of the first council of Nicaea. So with all of that calendaring going on, on what day was Jesus born? Or what year? The truth is, we don't know for certain. But you do hear an awful lot of people who say they know for certain that it wasn't on December 25th in the year 1. And they may be correct. If you're picking the one day of the year on which something doesn't happen, you have a 364 out of 365 chance of being correct. Most scholars now peg the year fairly reliably, in my opinion, in 2 B.C., as for the day, the early church worked it out based on when Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, would have been working in the temple when the angel appeared to him. There were 24 priestly courses, and each one worked one week in the temple. Zacharias was of the priestly order Abijah, number 8 out of 24. Herod's temple, we know, was destroyed by Titus on August 5th, 70 AD. It was known that the number one course of priests had just taken office. Working backward, they calculated what week Zacharias would have been in the temple, and knowing John the Baptist was born six months older than Jesus, they determined the angel must have appeared to Mary on the 25th of March. And nine months later, it's Christmas Day, December 25th. But of course, did Elizabeth and Mary each carry to exact term of 280 days? Or were they early or late? I personally like Chuck Missler's figuring, who calculated using those same backward priestly course extrapolations and comes up with John the Baptist's birthday on April 19th, 2 B.C., which he says would have been Passover that year. He then comes up with a birth for Jesus on September 29th, that same year. According to Chuck, that would have been on the Feast of Trumpets. I'm not exactly sure how he comes up with that because six months after April 19th would be October 19th. On the Jewish calendar I found for 2 B.C., that would have been the Feast of Tabernacles, which, I think, 
makes a better, more appropriate date. John 1.14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word for dwelt there is skenao, which means to tent or to encamp, which is why some translations use tabernacled among us instead of dwelt among us, a temporary encampment by Jesus here on earth with us. Plus, the Feast of Tabernacles is eight days long. If Jesus was born on the first day, the eighth day would have been the date of his circumcision. And it would explain the shepherds and the sheep in the fields. During the Feast of Tabernacles, more animals are sacrificed at the temple than any other festival, including Passover. And a herd of them was kept near Bethlehem. No one knows. But it's not the date that's important. It's what happened that's important. That the war against Satan's power over this world was coming to an end. And as with any life, it's not just that you're born, but what you do with that life. It's the meaning we take from the event, not what someone else ascribes to a particular day. Which means regardless of what day it really was, don't let someone else take the joy of Christmas away from you. To talk about Christmas, its origin, celebration, the accounts of it in the Bible, and a whole lot more, I'd like to welcome back Pastor Richard Peel, who leads the Victory Baptist Church over in Bend, Oregon. Pastor Peel, it's great to talk to you again. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be on your show again. Yeah, absolutely. So Christmas is, of course, the day we celebrate the day that Jesus was born, except as I mentioned in my opener, no one can say with absolute certainty which day or even really which year Jesus was born, although we're pretty close, I think. But does the date that we celebrate really matter in the greater scheme of things, or just that we mark the occasion? Uh, I would a- agree with the concept that the the day is not so relevant, especially going back to the fact that we don't have a, a dogmatic way to say this is the actual day that Jesus was born. The reality that he was is the most magnificent mm-hmm. and amazing truth, and that's what should be celebrated regardless, really, of what day it might fall on. Well, um, in doing some research, it was kind of interesting that the early church, um, well, of course, they didn't really celebrate Christmas at all. Uh, it, was, it wasn't until after the 300s, uh, mid-300s, that they started even acknowledging that he may have been born on the December 25th. Uh, but Christians and Jews at, the, at that time, and of course many early Christians were in fact of, of Jewish heritage, they actually celebrated a person's death more than their life. And of course that's really true for, for Christmas as well. If it wasn't for Easter, Christmas would really have no meaning. Absolutely. And if we even go to the scriptures um, for the New Testament, you know, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we are specifically told to memorialize our Lord's death till he come. And that's, of course, directly attached to communion or the Lord's table. Uh, But nowhere are we specifically directed to acknowledge the day of his birth. Hmm. Well, you know, maybe it's just as well we don't know the exact date, because if we did, I could certainly see where anti-Christians and pagans would have done everything they could to desecrate that day. And, you know, that, of course, brings up the point that a lot of Christians today believe that Christmas, celebrated as it is on the 25th of December, is pagan in origin, that it replaced uh, the Saturnalia uh, feasts and and some of the other things that were going on. So that really begs the question, should we celebrate Christmas at all? Uh, That is a very good question, and one that has been hotly debated throughout— well, in America, uh, in our early days especially. But um, I think the principle I fall back to uh, personally and then encourage my congregation with um, is in Romans 14, where the Bible speaks about um, esteeming a day uh, like any other day or esteeming a day above another day and 
ultimately that exhortation that's being given there is that no man would judge his brother in any of these matters because it's be the, the Lord who is our judge. And if we esteem one day above another, then we're doing it unto the Lord. And if we esteem every day alike, we're esteeming it alike to the Lord. Um, so I certainly believe that there is um, uh, nothing wrong with a Christmas celebration for believers. Hmm. Well, I, I certainly agree that when it comes to... Um Christmas in society today, all too often Christ is left out of it. And yes. you know, it's kind of ironic in a way because the church has been accused of co-opting pagan holidays, and nowadays secularists have co-opted Christmas and have tried to turn it into a non-religious holiday. I mean, and, and you see it in places—Wisconsin was uh, one such place—where they basically celebrated Christmas but outlawed any mention of Christmas— or anything to do with the religious aspects of it, and their reasoning, I guess, if you could call it that, it's out of fear of not being inclusive of other religions or atheists. I mean, that's kind of odd when you think about it. It's a Christian holiday. That's a bit like saying, well, we should leave all that Jewish stuff out of Hanukkah. It's almost comical. I'm, I'm, I'm the southern of the line about to laugh. Um, even in our area, you know, we have public um, areas where people can put up Christmas displays but but sadly, the nativity is forbidden, <laughs> which, wow. you know, it can be Santa Claus and reindeer and, and whatever, but um, the very central figure of this celebration, but it has definitely been secularized to the point that Christ, in many cases and in locales, is removed. Yeah. Okay, let's go and take a break there. We are talking with Pastor Richard Peel. He's out of Bend. His church is Victory Baptist Church. You can find out more about them by heading to Victory for You, and those are spelled out F O R Y O U, VictoryForYou.Church. Stay with us. And welcome back. This is the I Spy Radio Show. We're talking all about Christmas today. We're doing that with Pastor Richard Peel. He leads Victory Baptist Church over in Bend. Their website is Victory for You, spelled out F O R Y O U, Victory for You dot church. And you know, Christmas has had kind of an uneasy time of it when it comes to whether or not we celebrate it. And for most of America's history, starting in 1603 with the English settlement in Jamestown and up through the middle of the 1800s, Christmas wasn't really celebrated much, uh, if at all, was it? Uh, that's absolutely accurate. In fact. Um, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, um, by edict of law, banned any form of Christmas celebration. And I've read different historical accounts of the early Puritan churches um, where, in some cases, pastors were dismissed over the matter of uh, embracing some form of Christmas celebration within uh, the church unit. Hmm. Well, I know that... Um Governor Bradford actually threatened New Englanders with work, jail, or fines if they are caught observing Christmas. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. There, there just seems to be something about the Puritans. They really wanted to come over here and practice their religion the way that they felt like it ought to be, and, and they really thought that, even at that time, uh, that much of the Church of England was being uh, secularized or even headed towards Catholicism. But, you know, they, they really focus so much on the next life that sometimes it just feels like they kind of beat the joy out of this life. Uh, yeah, I've uh, sometimes uh, communicated that same thought by saying it's possible to get so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Mm. Mm. And, you know, all all across the globe among Christianity, there is certainly room for 
the embrace of cultural peculiarities um, that, that uh, th- there's certainly some things that, that should be avoided and the word of God should dictate one's culture to an extent, but totally agree with uh, that idea that um, you can certainly take all joy from this present life. Hmm. So as, as far as not celebrating uh, during the early parts of uh, America's history, aside from the church leaders at the time deciding that, well, you shouldn't, do we know why they felt that way, though? I don't know that I can specifically put my thumb on, you know, one specific thing. I, I think, as you've already mentioned, that there was the element of, of the connection to the winter solstice, typically following in the northern northern hemisphere, the 21st, 22nd of December. Uh, the post-celebration uh, of the rising of the new sun is the Long dark days of winter are to be shortly put to to past, etc. Um, that connection, I think, to that time of the year, and then I think also that you certainly had some um, divided pretty strongly against the Catholic Church, and if it was coming from that area of Christianity, that they were going to have nothing to do with it. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. So, a lot of the origins of modern day Christmas celebrations, really, the fact we celebrate it at all. Many have said we owe directly to Charles Dickens, who in 1843 published A Christmas Carol. He's been described as the father of modern Christmas because he re-inspired his generation and those since. It, it, it really revived and popularized Christmas. It took a nostalgic look at, at the holiday itself and, and the memories that he had of Christmas and, and other Yuletide celebrations. And as I recall from reading about the origins of A Christmas Carol, while Christmas had fallen out of favor in the cities and upper classes, Christmas never really quite disappeared from the outlying and rural areas or even from the lower classes and, and some of the middle class either. But at that time, you had the German influence beginning to play a role. Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, was German. She'd married him just three years before Christmas Carol was published. And he, of course, loved Christmas. And uh, the royal celebrations, I think, helped push Christmas firmly into the mainstream. And then British celebrations trickled over here, especially as more German settlers brought their traditions so it just kind of seems like Christmas just needed the right kind of people like the King and Queen of England to celebrate it for it to catch on. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I would agree with that, that um, uh, there's that element where um, a different segment, perhaps, of society begins to lead the rest of society into. And when you do have nobility, um, you know, kings, queens, presidential-type figures setting this national um, temperature, the, the nation's going to follow that. Hmm. Well, I I think I would be rather sad if we didn't uh, celebrate Christmas to some level because it just really, well, Dickens himself said how Christmas time, when it comes around, is a good and pleasant time. And inherent within that notion is that it helps cement the calendar and the passing of time in people's minds and to be mindful of that. And just marking that tradition, I think, is so important. But, you know, fast forward to today, and I know that in discussing the show and where to take it you know, via email with you, you'd mentioned the hallmarkification of Christmas being more influential in today's Christmas celebration than the Bible. And that's not a knock on hallmark at all. But talk to us a bit about that and the influence of Christmas themes, but not necessarily the influence of Christ. Yeah, it's, it's predominant, and, and I do what I can, you know, my pulpit to encourage the folks here to, to really keep, as we sometimes hear, you know, Christ is the the reason for the season. Um, but by that 
statement, what I meant was that a lot of the displays around Christmas and the interpretations of the nativity of Christ and so forth are sometimes driven by what's marketable. Um, mm. Go to the typical nativity display that's prepared, you know, for countertops or tabletops in homes or even in church buildings, and you, you get a fusing together of two different biblical records where you have shepherds coming to see a babe swaddled in clothes in a manger, and then later you have uh, the Magi from the East coming, probably in greater number than three, um, to see a young child. And yet, in the nativity display, those two events are cauterized as a single event, at least in a, a pictorial display. Uh, and I think that, that as that happens, it, you know, the Bible for many people becomes less influential than what they actually see. And the, the truth of the story of the birth of Christ is somehow lost to art, if that makes sense. Yes, no, it, it does make sense. You know, um, the, the fact that uh, Christ is often not in uh, so much of Christmas celebrations, we've got the White House right now where Jill Biden has set up all of these uh, decorations, but apparently none of them depict Christian themes. Uh, so I, I guess it's not to be too terribly surprising that uh, we don't see a lot of that in greater society either. We're going to be talking some more about Christmas. We're doing that with uh, Pastor Richard Peel coming up. We're going to be talking about the differences in the Gospels. Stay with us. And welcome back. We're talking about Christmas today. We're doing that with Pastor Richard Peel. He's out of Bend. His church is Victory Baptist over there, and uh, you can find out uh, more about them and also catch their live streams by heading to victory4u.church. We'll link that up on iSpyRadio.com. Today's show is 13-48, and uh, so I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about the two differing accounts we have of Christ's birth. We've got Matthew, and then we've got Luke's. And it's it's been my understanding that Matthew was more geared towards a Jewish audience, whereas Luke's tended to be more towards Gentiles. Is that fair to say? I mean, is that your understanding as well? Yes, sir. I would completely agree with that assessment. So why did they focus on the elements that they did? I mean, how do you see that play out in, in those two Gospels? Well, for the, the Jew, there was a long-standing, clear, even to this day, um, understanding of the prophecy of a coming Messiah who would serve as the King of Israel. Um, and of course, we know through biblical accounts and even modern history that uh, the Jewish mind had a difficult time in accepting the concept that their Messiah wouldn't just be a national savior, uh, but that he would be a worldwide savior was not on their field of vision and to this day really isn't for the adherence to Judaism. Um, so in Matthew, you really have God, I believe, communicating through this Jewish man, Matthew, to his Jewish counterparts, trying to really establish, especially in the first two chapters of Matthew, that that this Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God, to be our Messiah or King. Um, and so in Matthew 1, you get the genealogy of Jesus through what we would maybe say is his his earthly stepfather, Joseph. Um, substantiating that he had a right to fulfill the promise to David that his seed would sit on the throne over Israel. There's that direct connection back to David uh, through Joseph uh, that Jesus would be qualified, um, according to Jewish law and the promises of God to David, 
to sit on the throne of Israel as king. Hmm. Um, Matthew does not mention Mary being visited by an angel, but does mention Joseph being visited by an angel. Is there any particular reason why Matthew would have taken that tag? Well, again, I think it goes back to that Jewish custom. And when you look at the genealogies, it's primarily, you know, very patriarchal society. Uh, In the Jewish mind, you can read the gospel accounts even and see how Jewish men viewed their female counterparts um, in that culture. And so to try to communicate to a patriarchal society that um, this Jesus is Christ uh, the concept of a woman being the one that receives that message would not necessarily fit their culture well. Hmm. Of course, genealogy was very important, as you mentioned there, um, and that is mentioned in Matthew. Um, Luke does mention that too, but we'll come back to that. Matthew does focus a lot on, on prophecy. He talks about uh, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, which was prophesied by mm-hmm. Micah, the flight to Egypt and return from Egypt uh, by Hosea, the slaughter of the innocents by Jeremiah. But something that he definitely does not, uh, that he does cover that the others do not, is the visit of the Magi. And this is something that we had discussed via email there. And I agree with you that this was, um, they were almost certainly not just three wise men. The Bible, sadly, does not give us a lot of specifics sometimes, and uh, which can be maddening in itself. But uh, talk to us a little bit about what you think uh, the, the Magis were and, and uh, where they came from and how many of them do you think came? Well, I would. Um have to just believe, and and this is just through maybe a process of reason and logic and balanced, of course, by the Bible, Um, and really going back to the book of Daniel, um, where, you know, God revealed to Daniel amazing things about Israel's future, Mm -hmm. and unbeknownst Mm -hmm. to Daniel, I would say, to the world's future. And of course, if we understand Daniel's role in the the empire of Babylon and then later later Media and Persia, um, he was you might say the chief magi, and so he 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 would have been over all the others, and he would have been teaching them. And certainly, with his visits from Gabriel and these manifestations of future prophecies, he would have been teaching his students about what to be looking for. And so, I, I would believe that these magi were you know, the remnant of those after the order of Daniel, um, that he had been teaching and and explaining that there's this promise of a Messiah to come, and you're going to have a sign in the heavens and be watching for a star. Although we don't necessarily have records of Daniel doing that, um, I think there's enough internal evidence within the Bible itself to certainly make a, a fair assumption that that was in part what was taking place under Daniel's leadership. Uh, in the kingdom. In doing some research for the show, I came across a really fascinating page from Chuck Missler's organization, Cornea House, or I'm probably saying that wrong. But uh, he mentions that the Magi, uh, as discussed by Herodotus, uh, they were a hereditary priesthood among the Medes. And um, when uh, Darius put Daniel in charge of that hereditary priesthood, you could see why they turned on him, and that probably led to the whole incident with the lion's den. Right. Yeah, so... Just to back up a little bit, um, you know, the Magi, as you say, have a lot of ties to Daniel, but also the Magi then became part of eventually the Parthian uh, Empire. And in in 37 BC, well within the memory of many people living in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' birth, I didn't know this, but Parthian forces had swept Rome completely out of Palestine, including Herod himself, who had to flee to Alexandria and then to Rome. Uh, and with Parthian collaboration, Jewish uh, sovereignty was restored. 
and Jerusalem was fortified with a Jewish garrison for about three years. Palestine was Parthian, not Roman. Uh, and then when Herod had regained things at the time of Matthew's uh, writing there, the Magi were a priestly and governing caste, part of that Parthian empire, being Rome's main rival to the east, and their duties included absolute choice of the king of the realm. And so you can see why this caused a huge commotion with Herod, who wasn't Jewish. He was Idumean, uh, an Edomite, which is an enemy of the Jews. And here he is visited by this delegation of kingmakers from Rome's main rival. So there he was on the throne of a rebellious buffer state between these two contending empires, Judea having, within recent memory, been Parthian. So he was very well aware that any time his own subjects might suddenly conspire against him and bring the Parthians to their aid and sweep him right out of power again, and here they show up on his doorstep, out of the blue, demanding to know where the king of the Jews was. I mean, you can really see that uh, this would have caused a lot of consternation there, and you, it's no wonder, Matthew says, all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Yeah, this would have been, um, boy, just a cataclysmic event to have these magi arriving from the east and asking Herod directly, where is he, this born king of the Jews? Yes. Um <laughs> It would have almost been as if a invading force had appeared on the scene. Yes, yeah, an invading force. Uh, Chuck Missler estimates that there was probably um, a major military force that went with them because you're essentially going into enemy territory, and so he thinks that there was probably a cavalry escort of about a thousand men. So this notion that we just have three wise men showing up with some gifts. You know, that's that's probably not historically accurate. Okay, it is time for break. We're talking with Pastor Richard Peel from Victory Baptist Church in Bend, Oregon, talking about Christmas. And when we come back, we'll talk about Luke's account of the Nativity. Stay with us. Welcome back. We're talking to Pastor Richard Peel out of Bend. His church is Victory Baptist over there, and you can find out more about that church and watch their live stream as well by heading to victoryforyou.church, and we'll link that up on iSpyRadio.com. Today's show page is 13-48. And, you know, we were talking during the break there that um, this notion that Herod, not just being an illegitimate king because he was appointed, he he didn't come from the line of David, for one thing, but he was actually an Edomite, and that in itself has its own complications, doesn't it? It does, and a lot of people may not study the Bible, Old Testament specifically today, really closely, but the Edomites were the direct descendants of Esau, who was, of course, the elder brother of Jacob, who became Israel. Um, and Jacob, you know, that, that account is given in Genesis, uh, where he essentially forsakes the firstborn birthright and blessing, and Jacob then becomes the heir of the promises of God. Uh, related to a kingdom. And so Esau felt slighted, the Edomites felt slighted. And so for this whole concept of who's ruling Israel at that moment in time is just very interesting. Hmm. Well, and that struggle has continued down through so much of today as well. So um, before we get on to Luke, um, why did it take the Magi so long to arrive? And of course, just like we don't know exactly when Christmas was, we don't know exactly when the Magi occurred, but we have a sense that it may have been around a year or two because of the slaughter of the innocents. You know, Herod had ordered all the, the male children two years and younger to be uh, put to the sword. But, I mean, did they maybe peg the star that they saw as the conception rather than the birth? Because I guess there was probably no point in showing up when Mary was still pregnant. Right. And and I think, um, I don't know if you or any of your listeners have um, watched this, oh, it's about an hour and a half long video 
called the Star of Bethlehem. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, great view, and it it does a good job of you know detailing why they arrived, when they arrived, and what was happening. You know, we have the technology today um, through through uh, computer modeling to roll the heavens back two thousand years and see where the stars were at and what was happening and the constellations. It's a phenomenal. I would encourage any viewer or listener rather who's interested in that subject to just look up the star of Bethlehem and watch that. Uh, and I think it'll give a lot of good understanding as to why they came when they came. Um, and, and, you know, again, we don't know, well, of course, through, through backdating modeling, um, some believe that they can pretty much nail the date as to least when the star was rising in the heaven mm. um, under Virgo's feet, by the way, which is interesting, the Virgin of the constellations. Um, but uh, there was certainly travel time involved in a large caravan, again, on foot and beast, that sort of thing. Uh, but then you could just go to, you know, God perhaps hiding the birth of his son from the world for a time and a season um, for his own reasons. Uh, mm. Certainly mm. knowing that, that there is an arch adversary yes. all the way back from the Garden of Eden who wanted to destroy him. Um, so there's there's certainly some mystery attached to all of that. Yeah, I, I I have seen that documentary, and it really is very fascinating. And I'll put a link up to that on today's show. And again, it's the 13-48. Um, as far as the star is concerned, I know that Chuck Missler thinks it was actually a supernatural rather than, than a star, especially after the, um, uh, the Wiseman had appeared there in Jerusalem. Uh, he thinks it's supernatural because it moved. And right. his conjecture is that the star of Bethlehem uh, was this kind of glory, um, you know, the observable light uh, that emanates from the manifested presence of God. So um, lots of interesting theories there, and yeah. uh, we'll put links up to that as well. So moving on to Luke's uh, nativity story, um, it's very different. He does eventually get around to talk about uh, the genealogy from Matthew's um, it, it, but it is different, though, uh, from Matthew's. I mean, can I get your thoughts on, on why that is? Well, again, I think Luke, you know, I think historically we have a pretty good reason to believe that Luke was not a Jewish individual, but, but more of what you might call a proselyte to Judaism, but of Gentile origins. And it's definitely written in a more generalized sense where a non-Jewish mind can more readily grab hold of. And, of course, mm-hmm. What you see in Luke is the introduction, not really of a a king or a messiah, although that's not to say Christ isn't all of that, but the pronouncement when the the angel appeared to these shepherds was that a savior is born. Yes. Um, Then then they say of that savior, I'm looking at Luke 2.11, and this savior is Christ, the anointed of God, the Lord. Uh, but the first pronouncement is a savior, where in Matthew, it's, you know, Christ the King, it's the Messiah of the Jewish people. Um, and so I think God is, you know, trying to make sure that all people everywhere um, get this clear concept that Israel's Messiah is the world's savior, yes. including Israel's savior. Yes. Um, e- even again, you know, the, the angel in verse 10 saying, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to not Israel or the Jew, but to all people. Yes. Uh, and, and that's really the spirit, I think, that, that um, you know, we should long to see resonating in Christmas celebrations is that God is, is expressing his goodwill to the whole world 
through his son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And you're right. Uh, I, I think that really highlights that. I mean, even just when he says peace on earth, it's not peace on it to Israel. It's peace on earth and goodwill mm-hmm. to men, not goodwill to just you Jewish people. So right, I, I think exactly. you're right. It is, is much more uh, world-focused. Um, Luke does cover something that uh, uh, none of the other Gospels do, which is the birth of John the Baptist, uh, and an encounter that his father had, Zacharias had, when he was uh, working in the temple there. Why do you think that the kind of Jewish encounter and dealing with the temple, why do you think Luke decided to cover that if his focus was towards the Gentile? Yeah, that's interesting. Be- beyond... Um perhaps aiding with the timeline that we mentioned at the very beginning of the show um, to, to get some understanding there. But, um, you know, the way you pose that question, I've never given a whole lot of thought to beyond, I guess I would say that, again, the message, even in Matthew, certainly a Gentile audience can grapple with, and even in Luke, a Jewish audience can grapple with and deal with this this Levite, you know, who is a, the right family to be a priest, and and this encounter with an angel in the holy place, um, doing his weekly ministration, and and you know, it kind of builds again to the the fact that that this Jesus is the Jewish Christ, um, and and just brings a connection back into that. I think for the Jewish mind. Well, I, I would certainly agree with that. I think from Matthew's standpoint, where, again, he's foc- focusing on it more as the messianic side of things, and uh, at the time the Jews really believed that he was going to be kind of a general, there's kind of a warlike tone to that, because here's this potentially invading army coming from the Parthians with the wise men, but then also the slaughter of the innocents, and there's a lot of, of fighting and struggle going on versus what Luke does, where it very is much more about peace on earth, uh, and, and goodwill mm-hmm. to men. So, Okay, uh, yeah. let's go ahead and take a break there. Should we celebrate Christmas or not? What's the meaning of it all? We'll talk about that next with Pastor Richard Peel. And welcome back. We've been talking all about Christmas uh, here on the Osprey Radio Show. We're doing that with Pastor Richard Peel. He's out of Bend. His church over there is Victory Baptist, and we'll link up to that on iSpyRadio.com. Just head to show 13-48. And uh, so in, in, we've been talking a lot about the various aspects of Christmas, the, some of the traditions we've kind of just barely touched on and, and how it was celebrated or not in, in terms of the early church and early America. But when it comes down to today's world, what do you think that non-believers need to hear most this time of year? Boy, I would say, just going back to our previous conversation, um, they need to hear God's pronouncements from the heavens about peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Um, Certainly as culturally um, America becomes more and more secular, its holidays have propensity to follow suit. And we certainly see that in the commercialization Mm. of Christmas. You know, even the store displays and so forth is more about Santa Claus and trees and lights and ornaments and gift wrap than it is about God's gift to man, Jesus Christ. Yes. Um, so, so I, you know, boy, my desire is that, that men, generally speaking, specifically non-believers, would not just hear coined phrases, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season, um, but, but more purposefully the church, the believer, communicating um, God's message, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, 
Um, that, that, that's what God wished the world in, in pronouncing the birth of his son to shepherds in a field at night. Um, and really what you see, I suppose, uh, in that is God's hand in a merciful way reaching from heaven and the glories thereof to the corruption of earth, declaring his goodwill toward sinful man and offering forgiveness and offering salvation and offering um, the the uh, cleansing of sin and the granting of eternal life if man would but repent and believe on his son, Jesus. Hmm. Well, let's do that same question except for Christians. Uh, what do Christians, you think, need to hear most of this time of the year? Well, I think um, the same thing almost. In, that in our church, we sing a song that's called I Love to Tell the Story, and it's talking about the story of Jesus, the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection. And the last stanza talks about those who you know, know, know it best want to hear it like the rest. And um, it's good for us to be reminded. You know, it's just with anything, I, I say that familiarity breeds contempt. And the more familiar we are with the gospel, the more familiar we are as Christians with um, God's unspeakable gift, um, the more it, contempt that we hold toward it. And by contempt, I don't mean we have ill feelings, but we're just so familiar that we kind of lose the wonder of what God has done. And it's a great time for, for pastors, preachers, etc., to uh, pinpoint that again in the mind of believers that let's not lose sight of why we are able to be who we are and do what we do. It was all made possible because of the advent of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and then I think there needs to, you know, they, just like anybody else, believers can get all caught up in the commercialization of Christmas um, and ultimately just kind of push God off to the side and Jesus off to the side and Again, he's he's a little display on you know a coffee table somewhere in the house, and the tree maybe is the predominant um, decoration, even in a Christian home. And and you know how can families have to ask for themselves how they can maybe make some differences with that? Hmm. Well, how should um, families, especially especially Christian families, how should they help make sure that their children really? focus on the nativity and, and the, the Christian themes and, and really try to downplay the whole idea of gift giving and Santa and all the rest? Well, I think it goes back to uh, parents being involved at home. Um, when our kids were much younger, for example, um, we, we always read Bible. We would always read, quote unquote, the Christmas story. Um, Christmas Eve, Christmas morning, we would purposely, you know, before there was a ruckus of wrapping paper and bows and boxes and toys, um, we downplayed that. We didn't build the excitement up about that. We didn't send out, you know, trays of cookies for Santa Claus and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, there was gifts there, but um, ultimately it was, we, we highlighted Jesus Christ. Now, as my kids got a little bit older, I was sharing earlier that, um we don't any longer in my home, we don't even give gifts in my home at Christmas. We've shifted to a Thanksgiving gift exchange uh, because there's so much commercialization around the Christmas time and they get so much with aunts, uncles, and grandparents uh, that just in our home, we just don't do it. We, we shift to Thanksgiving and we focus on each other. And then at Christmas, we focus on Christ. Mm. And how old are your kids now? Um, well, my youngest is 14. Uh, my oldest is now 32 and uh, mother to two of our grandkids. 
32 year old she's probably not worried about sitting on Santa's lap I imagine <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah well what about Christians who you know, cause you see that uh, this time of year all the time on social media um, you've got some people trying to warn people off of Christmas in the same way they do with Halloween and all the rest and should Christians be scared off by pagan aspects that people will bring up of, of Christianity? And should they feel guilty about celebrating Christmas? No, I don't think so. I, I think um, the important factor for Christian families is to do a bit of research and understand what um, parts of the typical American Christmas celebration may have origins in some form of paganism. Um, but you know, you don't have to throw out the, the baby with the bathwater. Hmm. Um, you can you can eliminate certain elements of a cultural Christmas from your own personal celebrations and, and still keep Christ there and not create a um, weirdness for kids growing up right. and, and feeling right. like they're ostracized from the remaining segment of culture that, that may just serve to drive them away from the church. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a great point. Okay, everyone stay with us. We'll wrap things up with Pastor Richard Peel talking about Christmas. And welcome back into our final segment now with Pastor Richard Peel. He uh, leads Victory Baptist Church over in Bend. You can find out more about them by heading to Victory For You. That's F O R Y O U, Victory For You. Church. And we'll put that on today's show page at 13-48. And so uh, in the time that we have left, um, let's talk about some traditions. You, you mentioned that you guys used to do gift giving um, around Christmas time, like uh, pretty much everybody else. But now you shifted that to Thanksgiving to kind of de-emphasize the, the whole Christmas uh, rush and whatnot and, and to focus more on, on uh, church and, and the actual Christmas story. Um, what are some traditions that you as a church celebrate? Well, you know, it's... Um... Each family, obviously, in that realm, does their own thing. Um, but for us as a church, you know, we build up through the month of December uh, with a focus on the wonder of the, the, the giving of Christ, our, the Savior of the world. Um, we may certainly add into our worship services more of the traditional Christmas carols, we might say, Interestingly, sometimes we'll sing them in the height of summer as well, just to get people's mind back on the fact that that uh, Christ was born. Um, and then we do a lot of uh, more fellowship things coming into December, up leading up to Christmas with our, our small groups and um, dinners and uh, like you know this year, for example, Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday, uh, so we'll be modifying our morning service, and, and we'll have a hot breakfast in the morning, followed by a um, shortened down 11 o'clock service in our morning. We normally meet Sunday nights, actually, and uh, on Christmas Eve, we won't, allowing our families to have time with their families and that sort of thing. Um, so uh, we, in the past, there's been times that we've done um, like Christmas musicals, uh, that were designed and catered more to to bring in a unchurched crowd than than for our people, and it was more you know our people putting on a production in the hopes that uh, unchurched folks would come and and the advent of Christ could be shared with them in a um, understandable, clear way with an invitation to believe on Him uh, at the end of all of that. 
Well, I know that growing up, um, the churches that I came up through, neither one of them really focused on the Advent calendar. Uh, I came up uh, for the first 10 years or so of my life through a Baptist church, uh, and then uh, when we moved, uh, we went to a Christian Missionary Alliance church, which is you know not quite as um, evangelical, really, as, as I think Baptists tend to be. Um, do mm-hmm. you guys do Advent at your church? Yeah, we, we've never have followed the Advent calendar, um, per se. You mentioned musicals, and of course that was a huge thing in my family because my uh, oldest brother was the choir director, and so every year we would do a cantata, and it was a lot of fun mm-hmm. being part of that. And I think that's what makes Christmas so much fun, is that there's just so much to do. Uh, if you want to be involved uh, in the church, if you want to, uh, there's just always something going on, it seems. There's, uh, even within the cities that most people live in, there's a Christmas celebration of some sort, Christmas tree lighting and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I, again, I, I think the the non-Christian elements of things, I, I really think that's so important within families is to have that sense of tradition because they really do become anchoring points. And it's those common shared memories that we have that are the, the cement of the foundation that we all share as a family. Absolutely. And not just families, but society as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't the, the target of today's show, but we can certainly see how drastically different America is in the last 50 or 60 years, and really a whole new culture is coming in. And really traditions set culture, you might say. Mm-hmm. And as traditions change, culture shifts. And sadly, we definitely see a, a you know, turning towards secularism in America. Uh, and so the church just needs to be active in maintaining the traditions, individual families for the sake of the generation to come uh, should keep these traditions alive in their homes and encourage it in their churches. Well, I, I liked how you said it in that last segment there is that we can't, well, we really shouldn't ignore Christmas to the point where we be, kind of self ostracize ourselves from society. We need to be a, a part of the festivities. I think we need to be welcoming people in and hopefully get them in in the door for church. Now, we only got about a minute here with you. Um, what are some of the uh, important traditions of your own family that you especially look forward to every, every year? I would say probably the big thing for us is just um, we, we, obviously, as you marry, you have two sides to a family. So we have historically had one side of the family for a big Christmas Eve get-together meal, gift exchange, that sort of thing, and then a Christmas morning breakfast with the other side of the family. And again, I just think it's a time where um, really the unity around Christ draws people together, um, strong connections are maintained, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful time of mm. having family all together in one place. Yes, absolutely. I certainly look forward to that as well. Well, unfortunately, we are up against the clock. Uh, Pastor Peel, I want to thank you so much for your time today, and a Merry Christmas to you. Thank you to you as well, Mark. You know, as we started out with on today's show, the joy of Christmas is in what happened that day, not the day on which it happened. If you have faith in that and faith in what happened on Easter, then you can have real joy on Christmas and the whole year round. And be thankful that you do have that. I mean, how odd to celebrate Christmas and not know the reason for the season. Imagine being out there buying gifts for what? The sake of capitalism? I hope you do know. And don't be afraid to spread your faith, what you know and who you know. Because as we say every week, the best information does you no good if you don't use it. Reagan, what do you think? I do not believe in a faith that will fall on us no matter what we do. 
I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show.